0: The Victorian era, reigning from 1837 to 1901 under the watchful gaze of Queen Victoria, was an epoch defined by stark paradoxes. It was an age of innovation, where the clamour of factories and the hiss of steam engines heralded progress, yet the same streets harbored darkness and despair. Within the grandeur of Victorian London, hidden within the misty alleys and gaslit corners, existed a world in turmoil, a world of rampant poverty, unbridled vice and societal divides that cleaved the city into two. As we venture into the chilling depths of Victorian London, where every cobblestone seems to whisper secrets, can we unveil the true face of Jack the Ripper, or will he forever remain a demon figure lurking in the shadows? Today London is home to more than eight million people. It is one of the most diverse cities in the world, Its population is made up of people from various ethnic backgrounds and nationalities, making it a vibrant and multicultural metropolis. London is a global financial and economic powerhouse. It hosts the headquarters of many international corporations, as well as the London Stock Exchange. The city plays a crucial role in the global economy. The city is also a cultural hub, with world-class museums, galleries, theatres and music venues. It has several prestigious universities that attract students from all around the world. And during the Victorian era, where this story takes place, London was the capital of the modern world. Spanning from 1837 to 1901, the Victorian era encapsulated a time of immense transformation and indelible significance. It owes its name to the reign of one iconic monarch, Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria's reign was the epicentre of this remarkable epoch, lasting for a staggering 64 years. It was a period characterised by unprecedented change, innovation, and societal upheaval. The Victorian era witnessed the advent of the Industrial Revolution an era that reshaped economies, industries and daily life. Innovations such as the steam engine, telegraph and railway expanded horizons and connected distant corners of the globe. Additionally, London's strategic location as a port city along the River Thames made it the epicentre of the British Empire's vast trade network. It served as the world's primary financial and commercial hub during the Victorian era. Organised by Prince Albert, and held at London's Crystal Palace, the Great Exhibition in 1851 showcased the finest achievements of industry and culture from around the world. It demonstrated Britain's industrial prowess and drew visitors from across the globe. London's banks, including the Bank of England, established the city as a global financial centre. The introduction of paper currency and the development of the stock market solidified London's role in international finance. The Victorian era witnessed a flourishing of literature, art and science. It produced renowned authors like Charles Dickens, scientific breakthroughs by Charles Darwin, and artistic achievements such as the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. The opening of the Metropolitan Railway in London in 1863 marked the world's first underground railway system. It laid the foundation for modern urban transportation networks. And today, the London Underground, known to Londoners as the Tube, Carries more than two million people per day. But beneath the facade of progress, the Victorian era harbored stark contrasts. A world of immense wealth coexisted with staggering poverty, a divide that carved the very soul of Victorian society. This era was an intricate tapestry of contradictions, where the aristocracy revelled in luxury, while the working class toiled in unforgiving conditions. Victorian London, with its majestic architecture, stately parks, and flourishing arts and culture, Was indeed a world of elegance and refinement. In this era, the wealthy elite revelled in opulent lifestyles, luxurious ballrooms and sumptuous feasts. The grandeur was undeniable, yet it stood in stark contrast to a city teetering on the edge of an abyss. Beneath the veneer of prosperity lay an entirely different world, one marred by dire poverty, unsanitary living conditions, and a pervasive sense of despair. Overcrowding saw families squeezed into cramped and unsanitary dwellings. The lack of proper housing left many to languish in squalor. Child labour was rampant, and the innocent toiled in factories and mines, their futures eclipsed by harsh working conditions. Poverty was omnipresent, with beggars and destitute souls navigating the unforgiving streets, struggling to eke out an existence. Access to healthcare was a luxury beyond reach for most, Medical care was rudimentary, and the spectre of disease loomed large. Unsanitary living conditions and filth-ridden streets were breeding grounds for diseases like cholera and tuberculosis, which swept through communities with devastating consequences. The heart of our story lies in an area that bore the brunt of these challenges, a place known as Whitechapel. Situated in the east end of London was a microcosm of the city's contrasts, It held within its cobbled streets a rich tapestry of life, shaped by poverty, hope, and despair. In the 19th century, Whitechapel saw an influx of immigrants, particularly from Eastern Europe and Russia, seeking economic opportunities. This diverse population included Jewish, Irish, and Bengali communities. The East End, including Whitechapel, became a melting pot of cultures, languages, and traditions. Whitechapel also experienced rapid industrialization and urbanisation during this time. Factories and workshops proliferated, offering employment but often in deplorable conditions. Poverty and overcrowding were pervasive issues, with families living in cramped tenements and slum housing. Multiple families would share dwellings, and all members of one family would share one room. They would have to use the toilet in front of each other, they would sleep cramped in the same beds and they would make new babies while their children sat and played right next to them. This was the reality for EastEnders. There was no access to running water in these living spaces. Water would be available from a standpipe in the street. The water would only be available for a few hours per week. And this meant that people queued for hours to fill their buckets and then heave them back up multiple staircases to their lodgings. It was simply not feasible for workers, especially those working 12-hour days in factories, to get any water. It meant that hordes of men would wash in the river, or simply not wash at all. Additionally, disease was rife and spread like wildfire. Children would die young if not from scarlet fever or cholera which plagued Victorian England but from typhoid, typhus, tuberculosis, measles and other deadly diseases. But children also worked dangerous jobs, cleaning chimneys and crawling around heavy machinery in factories, picking up cotton and other materials off the floor. This work led to many getting caught and killed in the machines. Infant and child deaths were so common that you were lucky if your child survived past their fifth birthday. Stepping out onto the streets of Whitechapel at this time, most of your senses would be hit immediately. The streets were loud from horse hooves trampling over the cobblestones to people yelling in the street trying to sell their goods. It was deafening, but worse than that, would be the smell. The smell was unbearable. The streets were filled with human waste, horse dung, urine and mud. Horses would produce 1,000 tonnes of manure in a day, and it was often the job of children to wash it away. The River Thames was essentially London's sewer. For some time, it was believed that diseases like cholera spread because of smelly or bad air. Later on, they discovered that the disease spread through dirty water. And this led to the implementation of a new sewage system, which massively helped curb the spread of disease. Unfortunately, the East End of London, which wasn't connected to the new system, saw a final cholera outbreak in 1866. But Whitechapel's significance stretches beyond its daily trials. It holds a dark secret, an enigma that has intrigued and terrified generations. There are five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, But there is some debate about whether other women murdered in Whitechapel at the time also met their fate at the hands of the Ripper. One of these women, thought by many to actually be the first victim of Jack the Ripper, but not considered part of the Canonical Five, is Martha Tabram. On the night of August 6th and 7th 1888, just outside George Yard buildings in Whitechapel, Martha Tabram was murdered. Martha's lifeless body was discovered in the early morning hours of August 7, 1888, by a resident of the building. She had been stabbed multiple times. The brutality of the attack, and the similarity to later Ripper murders, led some investigators to believe that Martha Tabram might have been one of Jack the Ripper's earliest victims. Martha Tabram, born as Martha White on 10th of May 1849 in Southwark, London, was the youngest of five children. Martha married Henry Samuel Tabram, a foreman furniture packer, on Christmas Day in 1869, and they had two sons together. However, their marriage was strained due to Martha's heavy drinking, which led to alcoholism. And by 1875, Henry had left her, providing her with a small allowance that was later reduced when he learned she was living with another man. Martha Tabram had an on-and-off relationship with Henry Turner, a carpenter beginning in 1876 and ending a few weeks before her death. Their relationship was marked by Martha's excessive drinking and occasional nights spent away from the home. Since she has been living with me, her character for sobriety was not good. If I give her money, she generally spent it in drink," said Turner during the inquest into her murder. On the night before her murder, Martha Tabram was drinking with another woman named Mary Ann Connolly, known as Pearly Paul, along with two soldiers in a local pub, the Angel and Crown, near George Yard, a Narrow Alleyway in Whitechapel. The group split up about 11.45pm. Martha and her man went to George Yard, a narrow alley in Whitechapel. Pearly Paul and her man went to a parallel alley called Angel Alley. At around 2am on the morning of August 7th, 1888, P.C. Thomas Barrett patrolled his usual beat, traversing the streets near the north entrance to George Yard on Wentworth Street. The previous day had been a bank holiday, leading to a livelier night than usual, with the streets bustling with revellers and occasional altercations. During his patrol, Barrett noticed a soldier lingering near the entrance to the yard, likely enjoying the festivities of the night. Curious, Barrett approached the soldier and inquired if it was time for him to return to his barracks. The soldier explained that he was waiting for a companion who had entered the yard with a young woman. Satisfied with the response, Barrett continued on his rounds. A little over two hours later, a resident of the George Yard buildings by the name of John Saunders Reeves sought out Barrett urgently. He asked the constable to accompany him at once to witness the grim discovery he had made on a staircase landing. The grim discovery was Martha Tabram's dead body. During the investigation, PC Barrett, who saw the soldier at George Yard that night, chose one soldier in a police lineup, but then changed his mind and selected a different man, which would be scrutinized later. Pearly Paul, whom Martha was drinking with on the night she died, failed to identify the soldiers in a police lineup. Or did she? She was presented with a line of soldiers who were forced from their barracks by the police. But, Pearlie Pole exclaimed that the two men she and Martha were with that night weren't there. She was presented with a 2nd lineup in which she quickly pointed out two men. The soldiers were questioned, but then dismissed as the culprits, when it seemed they had not left the barracks that night. While it may at first glance look as if Pearlie Pole got it wrong, understanding the lives of Sex workers during this time is crucial to the story of the women murdered by Jack the Ripper. If Pearlie Pole had been treated with respect, perhaps the police might have investigated the two soldiers more thoroughly. Perhaps Jack the Ripper might have been caught immediately. Nevertheless, the police did not use their witness testimony. But there was a woman who lived close, very close, to where the murder took place. In George Yard buildings lived Mr and Mrs Hewitt, Their room was next to where Martha's body was found, but Mrs Hewitt said she heard nothing during the night, no screams or scuffles. But in the early hours of the morning, she did hear a piercing cry of murder. Mrs Hewitt remarked that early in the evening she had heard a single cry of murder. It echoed throughout the building, but did not emanate from there. But, explained Mr Hewitt and Mrs Hewitt in a breath, the district round here is rather rough. cries of murder are often frequent, if not nightly, occurrence in this district. So why, if Martha Tabram suffered injuries similar to the other women, in the same area, and the same time of night, just weeks before the first murder, is she not considered one of the canonical five? While Martha Tabram did suffer a brutal attack, the extent of injuries in her case were not as severe as that of the canonical five. The canonical victims, such as Marianne Nichols and Catherine Eddowes, had their throats cut and their bodies messed with in ways that went beyond what was seen in Tabram's murder. Additionally, it's believed that Martha was stabbed 39 times with two different knives, one possibly as large as a bayonet, while the other women were slashed multiple times with one knife. The key difference is that Martha had stab wounds from the knives, while the other women had slashes. For these reasons, she is excluded from the Canonical Five. Just weeks after Martha Tabram's brutal murder, there would be another savage attack in the dark streets of Whitechapel. The horror story of Jack the Ripper cannot be told without first getting to know his victims. The Canonical Five deserve to have their stories known and their names remembered. For a detailed look at the lives of each victim, you might want to check out the book The Five by Hallie Rubenhold. It has long been the case that sex workers have been looked down upon in society, with little sympathy when something bad happens to them. In examining the case of Jack the Ripper, we must understand that it was not the women's fault for offering their bodies for money, as if this was their chosen career and they deserved what happened to them. Quite the contrary. Opportunities for women in the Victorian era were largely determined by their social class, family background and access to education. This is still the reality for many women today. But in the Victorian era, women were primarily expected to fulfil domestic roles as wives and mothers. Their main responsibilities revolved around managing the household, including cooking, cleaning and childcare. Middle and upper class women often had the assistance of domestic servants to help with household tasks. Women also had limited legal rights during this period. They couldn't own property in their own name, and their rights to inherit wealth were often curtailed in favour of male relatives. Married women had even fewer legal rights, as their property and earnings were typically controlled by their husbands. It meant they had nothing of their own. Moreover, women could not seek divorce easily, whereas a man could seek a divorce for any reason. So, if a husband had affairs, a woman could not legally divorce him unless she could also prove he committed some other crime. It meant that men could have affairs and their wives could do nothing about it. Many working-class single women found employment as domestic servants in the households of the middle and upper classes. These jobs included roles such as maids, cooks and housekeepers. But this type of work was not easy to find for everyone, and many women ended up working in factories. They worked long hours in harsh conditions for very little pay. Some women engaged in home-based work, such as sewing, embroidery or lace-making, to contribute to their family's income. A few women achieved success in the arts and literature, including authors like the Bronte sisters Charlotte and Emily, who wrote Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, respectively. For many women, with no money, no husband and no skills, offering their bodies was the only way to survive. They had to eat and sleep somewhere, with many beds around Whitechapel available in DOS houses or homeless shelters for a few pennies a night. There were separate houses for men and women, but married couples could also sleep together in some areas, and there were several different options depending on how much money you had. For eight pence, you could get a bed and some bread or watery porridge at a lodging. For four pence, you could sleep in a coffin bed at a shelter operated by the Salvation Army. This fourpenny coffin was a cold, hard box with a tarp draped over you. In the dim light, these rooms looked like they were filled with dead bodies. While grim, at the time, it was the cheapest way to sleep lying down. That's because for two pence, you could sleep sitting over a rope. At 5am, the rope would be cut signalling your time to get up and go. For one penny, you could sit in a reasonably warm room all night, but you were not allowed to lie down or sleep. As a woman, often the fastest way to make your DOS money was to sell your body. For many women, it was simply their only option, or they would sleep on the cold, wet street. The first victim, Polly Nichols, had been sleeping rough between her time at lodging houses and workhouses when one night in the summer of eighteen eighty-eight she met the man we know as Jack the Ripper. Marianne Nichols, known as Polly, was born in London on August 26, 1845, and she was the second of three children. At eighteen, Polly married a printer's machinist named William Nichols on january sixteenth, eighteen sixty-four. They wed at St. Bride's Parish Church in the city of London. The couple initially lived at 30-31 to 31 Bouverie Street before residing with Polly's father at 131 Trafalgar Street. They had five children between 1866 and 1879. However, marital strife led to their separation in 1880. William accused Polly of desertion, and over the years, Polly faced numerous arrests for minor offences such as drunkenness and disorderly conduct. By 1881, she was residing at Lambeth Workhouse, describing herself as a charwoman, or in other words, a cleaner. During the Victorian era, workhouses were institutions designed to provide housing and employment for the destitute and the poor. Inhabitants were subjected to strenuous and often monotonous labour, and families were frequently separated upon entry. These institutions were associated with strict regulations and harsh discipline, creating an environment that was meant to be uninviting, to discourage people from seeking assistance. The workhouse system often elicited a sense of fear and desperation among the impoverished, highlighting the challenges faced by the marginalised in Victorian society. But for many, a workhouse was their only option, if they wanted to eat and have a bed for the night. There was a sense of shame when entering one, because it meant you were so desperate you needed public assistance. There is no shame in asking for help, but for many Victorians, this was taboo. The intense labour in these workhouses served as a punishment for seeking government assistance. A typical day in a workhouse during the Victorian era often involved a rigid schedule of work and strict rules. Inhabitants would wake up early in the morning to perform tasks such as cleaning, cooking or doing laundry. They would then have simple meals provided to them typically consisting of basic and sometimes unappetizing food. Workhouse residents would engage in labour, such as breaking stones, picking oakum, or other menial tasks. There was little time for leisure or personal activities, and any free time was often spent in communal areas. Lights would be turned off early, and people would go to bed in basic and often crowded sleeping quarters. The environment was generally strict and regimented, designed to deter people from seeking aid. Back to Polly Nichols, she left Lambeth Workhouse, but remained in and out of workhouses and lodging houses struggling with poverty and alcoholism. In April 1888, Polly worked as a domestic servant for a husband and wife, Samuel and Sarah Cowdery in Wandsworth. This was a common profession for single women at the time. While there, Polly wrote a letter to her father. She wrote, I just write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is a grand place inside, with trees and gardens back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people and I have not too much to do. I hope you are all right and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present, from yours truly, Polly. Answer soon, please, and let me know how you are. After just two months of working for the Cowderies, Polly left stealing some of the family's expensive linen. By the summer, she resided in common lodging houses in Spitalfields and Whitechapel. During the latter half of the 19th century, the heart of Spitalfields earned a grim reputation as London's most notorious criminal enclave. The narrow streets of the Flower and Dean Street district became a hub for nefarious activities where thieves and pimps thrived. In 1881, Flower and Dean Street was described as being perhaps the foulest and most dangerous street in the metropolis. It was known as a place of considerable poverty and squalor, marked by cramped living conditions and a high concentration of common lodging houses. Residents often struggled to make ends meet, with many relying on meagre earnings from menial labour or illicit activities to survive. In August 1888, Polly moved into a lodging house called White House on Flower and Dean Street. Here, men are allowed to share beds with women. On the night of her death, August the 30th, 1888, It was raining heavily, with bursts of thunder and lightning. Polly Nichols was seen walking along Whitechapel Road around 11pm. She visited the frying pan public house in Brick Lane, Spitalfields, leaving at around 30 minutes past midnight. She returned to the kitchen of her lodging house on Flower and Dean Street at approximately 1.20am. However, she was asked to leave the premises due to not having the required funds for her bed. Never mind, she says. I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. This statement implies that she somehow acquired a new hat and will be able to get the money she needs for a bed. It could mean that she bought the hat and therefore will find money in a similar way to pay for the lodging. Or it could mean that she stole the hat and will be able to steal the money too. Or it could mean that because she has a new pretty hat, she'll be able to attract someone to help her pay for the lodging. Either through selling her body or other means. There are many interpretations of Polly's quote, and none definitively make her a prostitute. Unfortunately, Polly never came back to the lodging house. At two thirty AM, Polly's friend, Emily Holland, encountered her outside a grocer's shop on the corner of Whitechapel Road and Osborne Street as she was returning from watching the Shadwell Dry Dock Fire. Polly had emerged from Osborne Street, appearing heavily intoxicated and struggling to maintain her balance. Polly confided in Emily, mentioning that she had received her DOS money three times that day but had squandered it all on alcohol. She expressed her intention to return to Flower and Dean Street, where she would share a bed with someone after one last attempt to get her DOS money. With a brief exchange lasting about seven to eight minutes, Polly departed continuing her walk eastward along Whitechapel Road. At 3.15am, Police Constable John Thane and Sergeant Kirby walk down Bucks Row on their patrol, but neither report anything unusual. Bucks Row is just a 10-minute walk from Osborne Street, where Polly was last seen. At 3.40am, Charles Cross, a carman, which is someone who drives a horse and cart, walked through Bucks Row on his way to work. He sees a woman lying on the ground. He calls over to Robert Paul, another man on his way to work, who is walking shortly behind him. The men investigate her body, and feel that her hands and face are cold, while her arms and legs are warm. The men do not want to be late for work, so they decide to carry on and alert the first police officer they find. They alert PC Jonas Meisen at the corner of Hanbury Street and Baker's Row. Meanwhile, P.C. John Neal has discovered Polly's body. He signals to P.C. Thane to come and look. P.C. Thane then goes to fetch Dr. Llewellyn, who lives nearby, and both return a few minutes later, with Dr. Llewellyn pronouncing Polly's dead, but a few minutes. Reporting on Dr. Llewellyn's inquest testimony, the Times wrote that Polly suffered numerous injuries, including deep incisions and slashes caused by a long-bladed knife of about 8 inches. It is clear from testimonies that Polly Nichols was a well-liked individual, with her father saying at the inquest, I don't think she had any enemies. She was too good for that. She was just 44 years old. Polly was buried at City of London Cemetery at Manor Park Cemetery in Forest Gate, East London. Annie Chapman was born Annie Elizabeth Smith in 1841. Her father, George Smith, was a servant and her mother was Ruth Chapman. Annie had three sisters and one brother. In 1869, when Annie was 28, she married a coachman named John Chapman. Together, they had three children, though one died at age 12 from meningitis, and one who was born disabled was sent to live in a home. In 1881, the couple moved to Windsor, a city not too far from London. However, in 1884, the couple split. A police report would say the demise of the relationship was due to Annie's drunken and immoral ways. John Chapman paid his wife 10 shillings per week after the separation, until his death, from liver disease in 1886. It is reported that Annie mourned his death and seemed downcast about it even two years later. From May or June 1888, Annie was living at Crossingham's lodging house on Dorset Street, Spitalfields. She had been seeing a man named Edward Stanley, who was paying for her lodging. However, he had also been paying the lodging of another woman called Eliza Cooper. Both vying for the affections of Stanley, Annie and Eliza had a physical fight With Eliza giving Annie a black eye. On September 4th, 1888, Annie meets her friend Amelia Palmer in Dorset Street and comments on her black eye. Annie claims she is feeling unwell. The next day they run into each other again and Annie further claims of being unwell. Amelia gives her two pence to get some tea and tells her to take care of herself. At 5pm on September 7th, Amelia sees Annie again on Dorset Street. Annie says she is too ill to do anything, but must find a way to make money to afford her lodging. At 11.30pm, Annie goes to her lodging house without money, but asks for permission to go to the kitchen. Frederick Stevens, a fellow lodger, has a beer with Annie and claims she was a little drunk. He said she did not leave the lodging until 1am. About 30 minutes later, Annie returns to the lodging, but since she still does not have her DOS money, she leaves once more claiming she'll soon be back with the money. At 4.45am, a a man named John Richardson enters the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street and sits on the steps of the building to remove a piece of leather stuck to his boot. He doesn't see anything unusual. At 5.30am, Elizabeth Long witnesses Annie Chapman conversing intimately with a man by the shutters of 29 Hanbury Street. Long distinctly hears the man ask, "'Will you?' and Chapman responds with a resolute yes. The time is certain, because Long had just heard the clock at the Black Eagle Brewery strike the half hour upon turning onto the street. Chapman faces Spitalfield's Market, her back turned to Long, while the man faces away from her, so Long does not see the man's face. Shortly after Long's sighting, Albert Kadosh, a young carpenter from 27 Hanbury Street, walks into his backyard, possibly to use the outhouse. Passing the five-foot wooden fence that separates his yard from Number 29, he hears voices nearby, catching only a woman's firm no before something thuds against the fence. Annie Chapman's body was discovered a little before 6am by John Davis, a carman residing on the third floor of 29 Hanbury Street with his family. Davis alerts James Green, James Kent and Henry Holland on Hanbury Street before heading to Commercial Street Police Station. Dr George Bagster Phillips recounts his observation of Annie Chapman's body at 6.30am in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street during the inquest. He said in his report that Annie had suffered deep incisions and jagged wounds, as well as removal of some organs. Dr Phillips suggested the weapon used on the throat and abdomen were the same, likely a sharp knife at least six to eight inches long, possibly one used in the leather trade. According to him, evidence pointed to anatomical knowledge. He estimated the time of death at least two hours earlier, accounting for the cool morning. Dr Phillips estimated the time needed for the injuries would have taken a surgeon a considerable duration to execute such acts deliberately. Annie's relatives, who paid for the funeral, met the hearse at Manor Park Cemetery and, by request, kept the funeral a secret and were the only ones to attend. Her grave no longer exists. Elizabeth Stride, commonly known as Long Liz, was born November 27, 1843, just north of Gothenburg in Sweden. In July 1866, she moved to London and registered as an unmarried woman. According to Michael Kidney, with whom Liz lived with on and off up until her death, she worked for a family in Hyde Park and came to England to see the country. On March 7th, 1869, Liz married John Stride, who lived in Poplar. They stayed there until 1875 when John's coffee shop business was sold. From 28th of December 1881 to the 4th of January 1882, Liz was treated for bronchitis at Whitechapel Infirmary. Afterwards, she moved into the Whitechapel Workhouse. It is unknown exactly what happened between the married couple, but Liz resided at the Common Lodging House at Flower and Dean Street from 1882 onwards. On 24th of October 1884, her husband, John Stride, died of heart disease. From 1885, for the next three years, Liz lived with Michael Kidney, a waterside labourer. And together they lived at 35 Devonshire Street off Commercial Road in Whitechapel. Their relationship was volatile, with Kidney noting that Liz was often absent from the home and drank a lot. However, Kidney was also drunk many times, and in July 1888 he was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Liz had even reported Kidney with assault, but failed to show at the magistrate's court. The 26th of September 1888 is believed to be the last time that Michael Kidney saw Elizabeth Stride. He found her at the lodging house at 32 Flower and Dean Street. From the 27th to the 28th of September, Liz continued to stay at the lodging house, claiming that she went there after an argument with Michael Kidney, but he denies this. During the weekend of the 29th to 30th of September 1888, Liz is paid six pence by the lodging house deputy, Elizabeth Tanner, for cleaning some of the rooms at the lodging house. Her final night, September 30th, Tanner spots Liz at the Queen's Head pub and they have a drink together, then walk back to the lodging house. Other lodgers, Charles Preston and Catherine Lane, see Liz leave the lodging house between 7 and 8pm, noting that she seemed cheerful. Liz asked Lane to hold a piece of green velvet for her until she returned and she asked Preston to borrow his clothes brush. At 11pm, two labourers saw Liz leaving the bricklayer's arms pub with a well-dressed, suit-wearing gentleman with a moustache. The man was kissing and hugging Liz as they were leaving the pub into the dark and rainy night. The labourers entered the pub as Liz and the mystery man stood for a while in the doorway. They tried to persuade him to come in for another drink, but he refused. At 11.45pm, Another labourer, William Marshall, was standing in the doorway of 64 Burners Street when he saw Liz kissing and talking with a man at 63 Burners Street. He described the man as wearing a cutaway coat and a sailor's hat. At midnight, a man named Matthew Packer claimed to have sold the couple some grapes. However, this story may just be a story and not fact. There are claims that Packer was simply trying to insert himself into the murder investigation. At 12.35am, a a policeman named William Smith claimed to see Liz and a young man on Berner Street outside the International Working Men's Educational Club. He said the man was wearing a deerstalker hat and a dark coat. But intriguingly, Smith said he saw the man holding a parcel wrapped in newspaper. The next part is at the centre of a lot of discussion in this case. At 12.45am, Israel Schwartz turned into Berner Street from Commercial Road. He got as far as the gate where the murder was committed when he saw a man stop and speak to a woman who was standing in the gateway. According to Schwartz, the man tried to pull the woman into the street but ended up throwing her down onto the street. She screamed three times. Schwartz crossed to the other side of the street and when he did, he noticed another man standing there lighting his pipe. The man who had thrown the woman, presumably Elizabeth Stride, he called out to the man with the pipe. He shouted, Lipsky. Schwartz was walking away, but claimed the man with the pipe started to follow him. He began to run, and the man with the pipe eventually stopped catching up with him. There are many theories about this incident, which we will cover in more detail later when we look at suspects. Much discussion revolves around whether the two men knew each other, alluding to the possibility that Jack the Ripper was more than one person. Schwartz was unable to confirm if the two men knew each other, though to him it seemed that the first man called out to the second. Later, Schwartz was taken to the mortuary, and he confirmed the body was that of the woman he saw that night. At 1am, Louis Diemschutz A jewellery salesman was driving his cart and horse through Dutfield's yard when suddenly his horse refused to go further. It was pitch black, so the salesman stuck out his whip and came in contact with a woman's body. He presumed she was drunk or asleep, so he got down off his cart and went into the International Working Men's Educational Club to get some help. He returned with two others, and together they bent down to rouse the woman only to discover she was dead with her throat cut. Dr Frederick Blackwell was called at 1.16am and he pronounced Elizabeth Stride dead. The jewellery salesman believed that he interrupted the killer since her body was still warm when he found her and because his pony was displaying frightened behaviour. Many people agree that Jack the Ripper was interrupted because Elizabeth was mostly intact, unlike the other victims. It is worth noting that the doctor who performed the post-mortem on Liz asserted that she had not eaten grapes before her death. The day after the murder, a large crowd of angry citizens gathered on Berner Street, unhappy with the police for not yet catching the killer. Elizabeth Stride was buried at East London Cemetery in Plastow. Elizabeth Stride was not Jack the Ripper's only victim on the night of 30th of September 1888. It is believed by many that the Ripper was interrupted shortly after he killed her and needed to find another victim to satisfy himself. Just 30 minutes after Liz was pronounced dead, another woman's body was found. Catherine, or Kate Eddowes, was born on the 14th of April 1842 in Wolverhampton. Friends described her as intelligent but with a fierce temper. At the time of her death, Kate was suffering from Bright's disease, an inflammatory kidney disease. Her father, George Eddowes, was a tin plate worker who moved Kate and her two sisters to London in 1848. Kate's mother died in 1851, and her father followed just a few months later. Now orphaned, Kate goes to live with her aunt in Wolverhampton. At the age of 21, Kate became involved with a man named Thomas Conway, a former enlisted man. Together they travelled around the country selling books and had three children together, though there is no evidence they were ever married. Kate commonly referred to herself as Kate Conway and had the initials TC tattooed on her left forearm. But the couple split in 1881 and Kate began living at Cooney's Lodging House at 55 Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel. While there, she met and became involved with a fruit seller named John Kelly. Frederick Wilkinson, the deputy of the lodging house, described Kate as "a very jolly woman, often singing. She said she wasn’t often drunk and was in the lodging house by 9 or 10 pm each night. She wasn’t in the habit of walking the street late at night and wasn’t intimately involved with anyone other than Kelly. On the ninth of September, Kate took some boots that John Kelly wanted to pawn to a pawnbroker. Afterwards, she and John were eating breakfast together at Cooney's Lodging House. That afternoon, when they were yet again out of money, Kate said she would go visit her daughter in Bermondsey. At 8pm, Kate is found drunk in a collapsed heap on the street at 29 Aldgate High Street. She was taken to Bishopsgate Police Station and locked in a cell. A few hours later, at 12.15am, Kate is heard singing in her cell. She asked P.C. Hut, the officer there, when she would be released. At 12.55am, Kate appeared to be sober and was released. As she leaves, she and P.C. Hut have a brief conversation. What time is it? she asks Hut. Too late for you to get anything to drink, he replies. I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home, she tells him. Hut replies, and serve you right. You had no right to get drunk. Hut then pushes open the swinging door of the station. This way, missus, he says. Please pull it too. All right, Kate replies. Good night, old cock. Kate turned left out of the doorway of the police station, which was the wrong way. If she wanted to get back to the lodging house, it would have been much faster if she turned right. Continuing the way she did, Kate would have passed the entrance to Duke Street, which eventually turned into Mitre Square. If Kate left the police station at 1am and it only took 10 minutes to reach Mitre Square, That leaves 30 minutes unaccounted for. At 1.35am, three men leave the Imperial Club at 16 Duke Street and see Kate Eddowes talking with a man. One of the men, Joseph Lewendy, described the man as wearing a loose jacket, a soft cap and a red handkerchief around his neck. He had a moustache and was five foot seven. At 1.30am, PC Edward Watkins was walking his beat through Mitre Square. It was dark, with only a soft lamplight illuminating a corner. He saw nothing out of the ordinary. Just 14 minutes later, he walked through Mitre Square again, but this time he discovered Kate's body where there had been nothing before. A watchman at 5 Mitre Square and an off-duty police officer at 3 Mitre Square saw and heard nothing that night. Another policeman, PC James Harvey, had walked down Church Passage from Duke Street shortly after P.C. Watkins left Mitre Square while on his beat, but he also saw and heard nothing. P.C. Alfred Long discovered a piece of Kate Eddowes' blood-stained apron on the common stairway of a tenement building. He insisted that he had not seen the fabric when he passed by just 30 minutes before. And above the apron, scribbled on the wall in chalk, was some graffito. It read... The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Anti-Semitic graffiti was common at this time, but the words seem to suggest that Jews, or a Jew, was responsible for the murder. It is unknown if the killer wrote this himself. Unfortunately, Charles Warren, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, was concerned that anti-Semitic riots would break out if people were to see this graffiti. At 5am, He ordered the writing to be washed from the wall before it could be photographed. The writing was, however, written down, spelling errors included. Dr Frederick Gordon Brown, the London police surgeon, was called to the scene and arrived at Mitre Square around 2am. Kate Eddowes had suffered similar injuries to Annie Chapman and Polly Nichols. She was buried at Manor Park Cemetery on 8th October 1888. Jack the Ripper's final victim, or at least the final of the Canonical Five, was Mary Jane Kelly. It was she who suffered the most mutilation at the hands of the Ripper, and is thought that this was because she was the only Ripper victim to have died indoors, away from potential disturbance. Mary Jane Kelly was born approximately 1863 in Ireland, but moved with her family to Wales when she was young. She had six or seven siblings and came from a family that was described as well-to-do by Mrs Carthy, a woman with whom she lived at one point. She moved to London in 1884. A woman named Mrs Phoenix, who claimed Mary Jane Killey lived at her brother-in-law's house in Breezes Hill, said she was Welsh and that her parents, who had discarded her, still lived in Cardiff, from which she came. But on occasions she declared that she was Irish. She added that Mary Jane Kelly was very abusive and quarrelsome when she was drunk, but one of the most decent and nice girls you could meet when sober. A reporter who looked into the Breezes Hill area wrote, It would appear that on her arrival in London, she made the acquaintance of a French woman residing in the neighbourhood of Knightsbridge, who, she informed her friends, led her to pursue the degraded life which had now culminated in her untimely end. It was said by a man named Joseph Barnett, who knew Kelly through living with her just before her death, that she worked at a high class brothel in the West End, and at one point accompanied a man to Paris. In 1886, after having lived with a couple of different men she was involved with, Mary Jane Kelly began living at Cooley's lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfields. Here is where she met Joseph Barnett, a riverside labourer and market porter. It is said that he was kind to Mary and sometimes gave her money. The couple moved around together and they were kicked out of one lodging house for being drunk and not paying rent. Eventually, they moved to 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street where they occupied a single room together. Life would prove difficult for the couple when in August or September 1888, Barnett lost his job and Mary Jane Kelly took to the streets to earn money. On October 30th, It's reported by an upstairs neighbour that Barnett and Kelly had an argument and Barnett left her. Barnett stated in his inquest testimony that the reason he left her was because Mary was allowing other sex workers to stay with them. He said she was good-hearted and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights. Barnett visited Mary Kelly frequently after their separation, and on the evening of September 9th, 1888, he went to visit her, but she was in the company of a woman, so he decided to leave. The woman Mary was with may have been Lizzie Albrook, who lived at Two Miller Court. Lizzie said that had it not been for the prospect of starvation, Mary Kelly would not have gone out into the streets as she did. Between 8pm and 11.45pm, there are no confirmed sightings of Mary Kelly, but there is an unconfirmed sighting of her drinking in the Ten Bells pub. At 11pm, She was seen at the Britannia drinking with a well-dressed man with a moustache. According to the witness, Mary Kelly was very drunk. At 11.45pm, Mary Ann Cox, who lived at Five Millers Court, was on her way home when she saw Mary Kelly walking ahead of her with a stout man. The man was wearing a long coat and a billycock hat and was carrying a pail of beer. He was short, at just 5 foot 5 inches. Mrs Cox passed them as they all entered Miller's court. She said goodnight to them, and Mary Kelly said the same and then started singing. At some point between the last sighting and 12.30am, Mary Kelly makes a meal of fish and potatoes. At 12.30am, a a neighbour is disturbed by Mary's singing, but her husband stops her from going down to complain. Shortly after 1am, Ann Cox leaves the building and sees light coming from Mary Kelly's room and can hear her singing. A woman named Elizabeth Prater, who lived directly above Mary Kelly, was standing in the entrance to Miller's Court for about 30 minutes while waiting for a man. She sees no one go in or out of Miller's Court. At 2am, a man named George Hutchinson, who lived at Victoria Working Men's Home on Commercial Street, Walks down Commercial Street and passes a man on the corner of Thrall Street. He then encounters Mary Kelly. She asks him for money, but he explains that he hasn't got any, so she tells him that she must go and find some, and she begins walking in the direction of Thrall Street. Hutchinson then sees the man he passed put his hand on Mary Kelly's shoulder. He says something to her, and they both laugh. Hutchinson hears Mary Kelly say, All right, and the man replies, You will be all right for what I have told you. They begin walking together, and Hutchinson notices that the man is carrying a small parcel. Hutchinson said the man had a moustache, dark hair of Jewish appearance. He said the man was wearing a long coat and a soft felt hat, a black necktie and a gold chain. It seems clear from the description that this was a well-dressed man, a description we have heard before. The pair turn down Dorset Street as Hutchinson follows them. They stop outside Miller's Court, He hears Mary Kelly tell the man to come along as they head down Miller's Court. Hutchinson waits until the clock strikes 3am, and then he leaves. At this time, during heavy rain, Mrs Cox arrives home again, but she doesn't go to sleep. She said that about 5.45am she heard someone leave, but couldn't tell where he went. At 4am, Elizabeth Prater, who lived above Mary Kelly, is woken by her cat. She then hears a faint cry of, "'Oh, murder!' but since this is a common occurrence, she doesn't think much of it. Another woman also staying at Miller's court also heard the cry. At 10.45am, John McCarthy, who is owed rent, sends a man to Mary Kelly's room to collect the money. The man doesn't receive a reply when he knocks on the door, so he goes to peer inside the window. He sees the body on the bed and immediately sends for help. It is several hours later when, under the order of police, McCarthy breaks down the door with an axe. The police find Mary Kelly's clothes neatly folded with her boots by the fireplace. Dr Thomas Bond, a police surgeon from A Division, provided a detailed report on the Mary Kelly murder. According to his examination, the body was found in a terrible state, far worse than the previous victims. There is a photograph, which you can find online, but be warned, it is disturbing. Mary Jane Kelly was buried at St Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leytonstone, on 19th of November 1888. Jack the Ripper was never caught, and Mary Jane Kelly was his last known victim. During the autumn of 1888, sales of newspapers skyrocketed as Londoners were desperate for any news related to the murders. The Star newspaper was the most popular, selling 300,000 copies a day. The British press was just as sensational in 1888 as it is today, with the media feeding into the terror and conjuring an atmosphere of fear. Whitechapel was one of London's last remaining slums, and journalists played into this, creating the idea that the area was a criminal underworld, home to antagonists to be avoided at all costs. While some newspapers took to reporting the murders with grisly details, others printed headlines that were more sympathetic to the victims. Most newspapers, however, took the same view when it came to the victims themselves. The papers took the view that the women were to blame for their own deaths. Reporting on Polly Nichols, the Telegraph depicted her as a degenerate, saying it was gathered that the deceased had led the life of an unfortunate and that she was worse for drink, essentially saying that she was a drunk prostitute who placed herself in danger. However, when it came to Catherine Eddowes, the Telegraph took a slightly different stance on her situation, since she came from a more well-to-do family. They painted the picture that she turned to working the streets as a last resort. The paper said, although she was drunk on the night of her murder, she nevertheless had the character of having been a decent woman, doing work whenever she could get it. Their stance perpetuated the idea that those choosing a life of working the streets were worth less than those forced into it through desperation. A similar approach was taken with Mary Jane Kelly, the last of the Ripper's victims. She was 25 at the time of her death, and did not live in slum housing. At her funeral, the Illustrated Police News reported, Men and women struggled desperately to touch the coffin. Women with faces streaming with tears cried out, God forgive her, and every man's head was bared in a token of sympathy. The sight was quite remarkable, and the emotion natural and unconstrained. Naturally, the people of Whitechapel and the rest of London became more and more frightened as the press helped perpetuate the terror and fear that Jack the Ripper was lurking in the slums, ready to attack at any moment. Many people sent letters to newspapers with tips and often unhelpful advice about who the killer could be and how he could be captured. Others wrote about their disappointment with the sensationalist press and the police investigation. People were wary and hyper-vigilant of their neighbours, co-workers and people they passed on the street. There was an air of suspicion hovering over the dark and dirty streets. One man was chased by police for a crime unrelated to the murders. Yet when locals saw the chase, they convinced themselves that he was the ripper. An angry mob grew and followed, calling for the man to be lynched. The police escort was bombarded by angry residents for hours afterwards. Anti-Semitism was rife at this time, and blame was placed on foreigners and Jews. After the double event, the night both Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were killed, the police found a blood-stained piece of an apron in the stairwell of a tenement in Goulston Street. Above it were some words written in chalk that said, The Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. Since the first canonical murder, rumours had been spreading that the murderer was a Jew. After the murder of Annie Chapman at 29 Hanbury Street, police found a leather apron near the body. Subsequently, a Jew named John Pizer, who was in the habit of wearing a leather apron, was arrested. He had previously committed some violent acts against women who worked the streets, He was a bootmaker, and he was cleared after his alibis for both murders checked out. After the writing was found in the stairwell of the tenement, in an area occupied by many Jews, the police decided to remove the writing in fear that an angry violent mob would form. Anti-Semitism was a real problem at the time, and anti-Semitic graffiti was common, so it is not conclusive whether the writing had anything to do with the murders. The piece of Kate Edo's apron found beneath it could have been dropped accidentally, or discarded there coincidentally. It is also not clear exactly what the message means. The writing, The Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing, uses a double negative, which is common even today in the Cockney dialect. It can therefore be interpreted as, The Jews are not the men to be blamed for anything. Or, put more simply, The Jews shouldn't be blamed. Or, the Jews won't take the blame. This interpretation would suggest that the writing was not put there by the killer, but rather by someone who did not want the Jews to be scapegoats. Or, perhaps the writing was put there by the killer. It could mean, if you're going to blame Jews, we'll give you something to blame us for. Another interpretation would be that the killer wrote it, and was trying to incriminate the Jews in a misdirection, aimed at sending the police down the wrong path, or it could be that the writing has no connection to the murders at all. What do you think the message is? Leave a comment below with your interpretation. There are many key witnesses involved in the Jack the Ripper case, and some would seem more credible than others. Each witness enables us to piece together the events and gives us a deeper understanding of the victims and their movements. Let's look at the witness accounts of those who saw the victims with men close to the time they died. The first victim, Polly Nichols, was not seen with any man. The second victim, Annie Chapman, was seen at 5.30am by Elizabeth Long. Annie was standing with a man outside 29 Hanbury Street, where she would later be found dead. Unfortunately, Long could not see the man's face. Only moments later, Albert Kadosh walked into his backyard at 27 Hanbury Street when he heard a woman shout, No! and then something dropped against a fence. On the night of the double event, the first victim, Elizabeth Stride, was seen by two labourers as she and a man were exiting the Bricklayer's Arms pub. They described him as short, with a dark moustache and sandy eyelashes. He was wearing a billycock hat, a morning suit and a coat. Forty-five minutes later, William Marshall, another labourer, sees Elizabeth Stride with a man on Burners Street outside the International Men's Working Club. He described the man as wearing a short cutaway coat and sailor's hat. At 12.35am, PC William Smith saw Liz Stride with a man in the same place. He described the man as 28 years old, wearing a dark coat and a deerstalker hat. He was also carrying a package. Fifteen minutes later, Israel Schwartz turned into Burner Street from Commercial Road. He reached the gateway, where Liz's body would later be found, when he saw a man stop and speak to a woman. He tried to pull the woman into the street, then ended up pushing her down. Schwartz crossed the street, and upon doing so noticed a second man lighting a pipe. The first man called out Lipsky, apparently to the second man who then, according to Schwartz, began following him. The two witnesses who saw a man with stride closest to the time of her death were P.C. Smith and Israel Schwartz. However, they seem to describe two different people. Schwartz described the man as about 30 years old, five foot five and with a fair complexion, dark hair and a dark moustache. While this seems to match P.C. Smith's description, the witnesses described the man they saw as wearing different outfits. P.C. Smith describes a dark coat and a deerstalker hat, while Schwartz describes an overcoat with a black felt hat with a wide brim. While the coats could be the same, The hats are not. While eyewitness accounts are not always reliable, Schwartz saw Liz Stride closest to the time of her death, and he appears to have been extremely close to her and the man she was with when he walked past them. His description is therefore more easily accepted. Not that long later, at 1.35am, three men were leaving the Imperial Club on Duke Street. They saw the second victim on the night, Kate Eddowes, talking with a man. They described the man as 30 years old, five foot seven with a fair complexion, a moustache and a medium build. He was wearing a salt and pepper jacket, a grey cloth cap with a peak and a red handkerchief around his neck. On the night that Mary Jane Kelly was killed, George Hutchinson was walking on Commercial Street when he passed a man at the corner of Thrall Street. Mary Kelly approached Hutchinson asking for money, but he turned her away. He then saw the man standing on the corner speak to her. They laugh and then begin walking together towards Dorset Street. Hutchinson followed the pair to Miller's court. He described the man as five foot six or seven, fair complexion with a moustache. He had dark hair, dark eyes and bushy eyebrows. He was wearing a soft felt hat, a long dark coat and had a white collar fixed with a pin. He wore a gold chain in his waistcoat and carried gloves and a small parcel. At one point, he gave Stride a red handkerchief. Hutchinson's description at first seems detailed, but there are many questions unanswered. How long was the man's coat? How did he discern a red handkerchief in low lighting? How did he gauge the man's height? Why did he describe the man as having, in his words, an overall Jewish appearance? Looking at these descriptions, it seems that the witnesses agree on some things, such as fair complexion, a moustache, about 30 years old. Some witnesses mention a red handkerchief and a parcel. However, descriptions of clothing vary wildly. The only somewhat matching descriptions of the hat were from George Hutchinson, who said the man wore a soft felt hat, and from Israel Schwartz, who said the man he saw wore a black velvet hat with a wide brim. Could soft felt be the same as velvet? Modern depictions of the Ripper show him wearing a top hat, but none of the witnesses specifically mention a top hat though that does appear to be what Israel Schwartz was describing. Schwartz and Hutchinson appear to be the witnesses who had the best look at the possible killer. Schwartz described the man as 30 years old, fair complexion, dark hair and a moustache, wearing an overcoat and black velvet hat with a wide brim. Hutchinson described a man as 30 years old, with a fair complexion, dark hair, a moustache, wearing a long coat and a soft felt hat. While Schwartz does not mention a gold chain, white collar or red handkerchief, the other details appear to match what Hutchinson saw. The difference is the height, with Schwartz describing the man as five foot five and Hutchinson describing him as five foot six or seven, but this difference is minimal. Could it be that these witnesses saw the killer? It's certainly possible. But what did the police think? Frederick George Aberline, born 1843, was a chief inspector for the London Metropolitan Police. When examining the case of Jack the Ripper, it's impossible not to mention Aberline, since he was a key investigator in the case. Actor Johnny Depp played Inspector Aberline in the 2001 film From Hell. Aberline was an experienced investigator who had spent considerable time in Whitechapel. He had been promoted out of the area in the previous year, But was brought back by Scotland Yard in September 1888 to take charge of several detectives working the Ripper murders. The first lines of inquiry were to determine if the victims knew their killer, but it soon became clear that they did not. Another early inquiry was to look at local gangs and known criminals, but again this avenue proved fruitless. One of the aspects of the police investigation involved asking the question, did the Ripper have anatomical knowledge? Many of the victims had their organs removed, which led police to ponder what skills the Ripper had. The murders happened quickly in low lighting, so how could the Ripper make such intricate incisions to remove the organs he wanted without destroying or hacking away at the rest of the body? Dr George Bagster Phillips, the police surgeon for the Met Police, stated, Obviously, the work was that of an expert, or one at least, who had such knowledge of anatomical or pathological examinations as to be enabled to secure the pelvic organs with one sweep of the knife. On the other hand, Dr. Thomas Bond, an expert in venereal diseases who came into the case late but familiarised himself with his peers' notes, said the killer did not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher. Dr. Phillips' expertise was used by the Met Police since the murder started. Even when Catherine Eddowes, whose death occurred in Mitre Square, which fell into the jurisdiction of the City of London Police, he was called to assist. Dr Bond, on the other hand, had only examined the remains of Mary Jane Kelly. It therefore seems Dr Baxter Phillips' opinion is more reliable. The first piece of evidence that Jack had anatomical knowledge is that each victim was killed with a slash of the throat from ear to ear. This act silenced the women immediately and showed that Jack knew where to cut to ensure a silent and swift death. Further, the women were laid down on their backs, allowing for fluids to drain out, allowing the killer to walk away stain-free. Organs were then removed undamaged. Curiously, it was sometimes the case that similar bodies had been brought to St. Bart's Hospital dissection room. Often, these bodies were rejected for dissection because organs had been removed, the body cut open or messed with in some way. It has been theorised that Jack the Ripper was a medical student because the speed and precision used to remove the women's organs could only have been achieved with repeated practice. Medical students at various London hospitals, including St Bart's, would practice under candlelight or gaslight, adding credence to this theory. Or perhaps he was a butcher. A butcher would have access to knives, and he would have basic anatomical knowledge, albeit of animals. A murder weapon was never recovered from any of the crime scenes, so it's impossible to know with absolute certainty what type of knife was used to commit the crimes. However, it was surmised by Dr Thomas Bond that the same knife was used on all victims. To understand the type of weapon used, we must look at the medical reports and inquest testimony. At the inquest after the death of Polly Nichols, Dr Llewellyn, who examined the body at the scene, testified that the cuts must have been caused by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp. After the death of Annie Chapman, Dr George Baxter Phillips reported it must have been at least five or six inches in length, probably more. The same doctor also performed the post-mortem on Elizabeth Stride, but in his report he did not mention the knife. After observing the body of Catherine Eddowes at the crime scene, Dr Frederick Gordon Brown reported, the wounds on the face and abdomen prove that they were inflicted by a sharp pointed knife six inches or longer. Dr Thomas Bond, after examining the inquest reports, and himself examining the body of Mary Jane Kelly, would later replied to a request for guidance from Robert Anderson, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Criminal Investigation Department. In his letter, Dr Bond wrote, The instrument must have been a strong knife, at least six inches long, very sharp, pointed at the top, and about an inch in width. It may have been a clasp knife, a butcher's knife, or a surgeon's knife. I think it was no doubt a straight knife. The conclusion from the inquests and the reports seemed to point to a long-bladed, sharp knife of approximately 6 inches in length. It could have been the type of knife used by a butcher or a surgeon. Unfortunately, we'll never know exactly what type of knife was used. During the autumn of the murders, many letters were sent to police and the press claiming to be from Jack the Ripper. Some people believe that all of them are fakes, written for attention or to create more fear. Other people believe that most are fakes, except for a select few. The most famous of these letters are the Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jack postcard, and the From Hell letter. The Dear Boss letter was received by the Central News Agency on 27th of September, 1888. Originally, it was thought to be a hoax, but a few days later, after the double event, the legitimacy of the letter was reconsidered. Before this letter, the murders were known as the Whitechapel Murders, but the writer created a terrifying legend when he signed it. He signed it, Jack the Ripper, a name that would still be heard and spoken by millions of people for more than a century later. The letter reads, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S., wasn't good enough to post this before i got all the red ink stuff off my hands curse it no luck yet they say i'm a doctor now ha <laughs> ha in the letter the writer says in the next killing they will clip the lady's ear off the double event followed and eerily kate eddo's earlobe was severed was this a coincidence or did the ripper really write this letter some people argue that the severed ear was due to the cuts inflicted on her face while others argue it was deliberate. A postcard was received by the Central News Agency on October 1st, 1888, and it is believed to be written by the same person who wrote the Dear Boss letter. The postcard references both the double event and the Dear Boss letter. The double event happened the night before the postcard was received, suggesting that the writer could not have learned information about it in time. However, others say that the writer could have learned enough from the early morning papers, since it was postmarked more than 24 hours after the time of the murders. The postcard reads, "'I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about saucy Jackie's work tomorrow, double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Ha, not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again, Jack the Ripper." The final of the most credible letters is the From Hell letter. Unlike the first two, this letter was not sent to the press, but instead was sent to George Lusk, the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. With the letter, Lusk received a three-inch box and inside was a human kidney, preserved in wine. An examination by Dr Thomas Openshaw, the curator of the London Pathological Museum, found the kidney to be similar to the one removed and missing from Kate Eddowes. The letter reads, From hell, Mr. Lusk, sorry, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate it, it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Notice how this letter was not signed, Jack the Ripper. It was also in different handwriting than the other two letters. The consensus among police officials and ripperologists is that the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jack postcard were hoaxes. It's widely believed that they were written by a journalist to sell papers. The Central News Agency had stiff competition from other media outlets, so by penning a letter by the killer, it would give them something sensational to print and sell. If this was the writer's intention, it worked. The letters were reprinted in newspapers and by the Metropolitan Police, creating a worldwide frenzy of fear. The From Hell letter is still hotly debated. Some people argue that it is the only authentic letter written by the killer. It is the most disturbing of the letters and was sent to the police along with a human kidney. Was it Kate Eddow's missing kidney? Was the letter written by a medical student who had access to a cadaver? These questions remain unanswered. It is not definitive if the kidney was in fact Kate Eddowes' missing kidney. Dr Openshaw, who examined the kidney, concluded that it was from a female about 45 years old who suffered from Bright's disease, a disease affecting the kidneys causing inflammation. Dr Gordon Brown reported that Kate Eddowes' remaining kidney appeared unhealthy. It's important to note that Bright's disease was a catch-all term for a number of ailments affecting the kidneys. Today, the term is no longer used because specific ailments are referred to instead. It means that Kate Edo's remaining kidney and the kidney sent to Lusk could have been affected by different diseases. It is also debated if Dr Openshaw's conclusions are even correct. Dr William Sedgwick Saunders, who had examined Kate Edo's stomach contents but had not seen the remaining kidney, said to a reporter, It is a pity that some people have not got the courage to say they don't know. You may take it that there is no difference whatever between the male and female kidney. As for those in animals, they are similar. The cortical substance is the same and the structure only differs in shape. I think it would be quite possible to mistake it for a pig's. It is therefore not conclusive that the kidney sent to George Lusk was Kate Eddow's kidney, and therefore it is not certain if the From Hell letter was written by Jack the Ripper. The problem with publishing such letters so that the public could try to identify the handwriting is that it spurred copycats to send in even more letters, making it harder for the police to discern which, if any, were real. Do you think the letters were real or a hoax? Comment below. Next. Let's look at the top suspects, the diary, and the DNA. Hundreds of individuals have been put forward as suspects by experts, theorists, and historians, but there are some that have taken the spotlight more than others. Some names that come up again and again are George Chapman, Aaron Kuzminski, H. H.H. Holmes, Charles Lechmere, and Walter Sickert. Let's look at each of these suspects in turn, and then some other compelling suspects you may not have heard of. George Chapman, born Severin Antoniewicz Klasowski, was a Polish barber who had trained as a surgeon while living in Poland. He came to England in either 1887 or 1888 and worked as a barber. He was still married to a woman in Poland while he married Lucy Bederski in London. His Polish wife came to confront him, but eventually she left. Klasowski and Lucy had a son who sadly died, and shortly thereafter the couple moved to New Jersey in the United States sometime after April 1891. But the couple's relationship was volatile, and Klausowski attacked Lucy with a knife. Distraught, Lucy moved back to London without him, only for him to follow her. They rekindled for a while, but eventually split for good. Klazowski had a string of lovers and was equally vile to all of them. In 1893, he met a woman named Annie Chapman, a different Annie Chapman to the one killed by Jack the Ripper, and he got her pregnant. Being far from a good partner, he brought home another woman, which understandably upset Annie, and she moved out. Klazowski did not provide her or the baby with any financial support, but instead he took something from Annie. Her name Klazowski became George Chapman. Chapman's next target was a woman named Mary Spink whose husband had taken their son and left. She and Chapman began living together while leasing a barbershop. Both the business and the relationship met the same fate. The business closed and Chapman ended up managing the Prince of Wales pub in Bartholomew Square. Chapman beat Mary several times, with witnesses noticing bruises on her face and throat. She became ill with severe stomach pains and eventually died on Christmas Day. Chapman had poisoned her, slowly, over time, with tartar emetic, a substance he bought from a local chemist. Not exactly a grieving husband, Chapman hired a woman named Bessie Taylor to help in the pub. Unfortunately, she too would die of poisoning. Next, Chapman entered into another bogus marriage with a woman named Maud Marsh. He beat her, just as he did with his other wives. He poisoned her to death as well, but this time he didn't get away with it. Traces of antimony and arsenic were found in her organs during the post-mortem, and Chapman was swiftly arrested. The bodies of his previous wives were exhumed and found to be perfectly intact. They had not decayed at all, a lasting effect of the poison he had not considered. He wasn't as smart as he thought, and he was convicted of Maud's death in 1903. Chief Inspector Aberline had suspected that George Chapman was Jack the Ripper. In the Pullmore Gazette, he is quoted as saying, "...the date of the arrival in England coincides with the beginning of the series of murders in Whitechapel. There is a coincidence also in the fact that the murders ceased in London when Chapman went to America." while similar murders began to be perpetrated in America after he landed there. The fact that he studied medicine and surgery in Russia before he came over here is well established, and it is curious to note that the first series of murders was the work of an expert surgeon, while the recent poisoning cases were proved to be done by a man with more than an elementary knowledge of medicine. The story told by Chapman's wife of the attempt to murder her with a long knife while in America is not to be ignored. George Chapman was a misogynist, a murderer of women and lived in Whitechapel at the time. Further, since the Jack the Ripper murders happened on weekends, it's believed that the killer must have had a job during the week, which Chapman did. His wife Lucy said that he frequently was out until the early hours of the morning. His clothes and appearance also fit the bill. Being Polish, he had the look of a foreigner. He had a fair complexion, a medium build, and wore the same peaked cap as seen by three key witnesses. However, George Chapman would have only been 23 years old at the time of the murders, and the witnesses claim to have seen the victims with men at least 28 years old. But looks and ages can be deceiving, and he could have looked older than he was. There is also the discrepancy in MOs. Jack the Ripper killed violently and brutally, slashing with a knife but Chapman killed methodically and calculated. While killers can escalate their violence over time, stabbing and poisoning are very different methods and it does not seem to be the work of the same person. Aberline would not have had the same understanding of criminal MOs that we have today. Nevertheless, George Chapman does check a lot of the boxes. Could he have been Jack the Ripper? Or was it another Polish Jewish barber living in Whitechapel at the time? The name Kuzminski first appeared as a suspect in a memo written by Assistant Chief Constable Sir Melville McNaton. This memo, written in 1894, names Kuzminski and two other men as suspects. It wasn't until the 1950s that this memo was discovered amongst personal papers. Sir Robert Anderson, the second Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, claimed in his memoirs published in 1910 that they had identified Jack the Ripper but he was unwilling to disclose it. He did say that the man responsible for the murders was a low-class Polish Jew who was safely caged in an asylum. He had been seen by a witness, a witness who was the only person who ever had a good view of the murderer, but the witness did not testify because he was a fellow Jew. Anderson's colleague, DCI Donald Swanson, annotated a copy of the memoir, and in his own handwritten notes, He named the man to whom Anderson was referring, Kuzminski. At the back of the book, Swanson's handwritten note reads, After this identification, which suspect knew, no other murder of this kind took place in London after the suspect had been identified at the seaside home where he had been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification, and he knew he was identified. On suspect's return to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by police by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, he was sent to Stepney Workhouse and then to Colney Hatch and died shortly afterwards. Kosminski was the suspect. Since then, a man named Aaron Kosminski has become one of the prime suspects. He was a Jewish barber from Poland living in Whitechapel. He was admitted to Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum on the 7th of February 1891. He was mentally ill and suffered auditory hallucinations and paranoia. He once threatened his sister with a knife and was described by McNaton in the memo as a homicidal and misogynistic resident of Whitechapel. Upon admittance to Colney Hatch, It was unknown what Kuzminski's mental illness was, but he refused food from others and instead ate scraps of food off the street. He did not wash himself and hadn't worked for years. It was noted at the time that he was not suicidal or a danger to others. Remember, it was generally accepted that Jack the Ripper worked since the murders took place on weekends. Aaron Kuzminski had not worked for years. While at first Kuzminski seemed to be able to speak, his illness got progressively worse over the years, and his speech and mental state deteriorated. Notes from doctors at the asylum describe Kuzminski as quiet and incoherent. Another entry says, Patient is morose in manner. No sensible reply can be got by questions. He mutters incoherently. Yet another described him as incoherent, apathetic, unoccupied. There is one instance of violence that was recorded, when he attacked an attendant with a chair. Otherwise, he was seemingly nonviolent. Could this mentally ill man, one who seemingly could not reply to basic questions, be the same man who performed several brutal, calculated and sophisticated murders? It seems unlikely but it is unknown exactly what his level of competency was at the time of the murders, which took place over two years prior to his admission to the asylum. He may have been of sound mind at the time. But there remains the question, if Aaron Kuzminski was in fact Jack the Ripper, why did the murders stop in 1888 when he was still on the street for the further two years? There is a theory that Aaron Kazminsky and the police's Kuzminski may not be the same person but more on that later. It should be noted that there are no surviving police records other than the memo mentioning a Kuzminski, so it is impossible to know just how closely, if at all, anyone named Kuzminski was looked at. Nevertheless, Aaron Kazminsky is one of the most popular suspects, and while it's plausible, there isn't any evidence to suggest he was violent, let alone as brutally violent as Jack the Ripper was. Someone we do know for a fact was violent, was the American serial killer H.H. Holmes. Real name Herman Webster Mudgett, H.H. H. Holmes was an American serial killer born on May 16, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. His most notorious criminal activities took place during the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Exposition. Holmes had constructed a large hotel near the fairgrounds, which later became known as the Murder Castle. The hotel was a maze-like structure, with soundproof rooms, secret passages, and a host of other sinister features designed for his criminal pursuits. Holmes would trap victims in the hotel, subjecting them to horrifying torture and eventually murdering them. Some rooms were equipped with gas lines to asphyxiate victims, while others contained chutes for quickly disposing of bodies. The actual number of his victims is uncertain, but estimates range from several to possibly over 200. Holmes's crimes came to light when authorities discovered he had engaged in various fraudulent activities, including insurance scams and faking his own death. He was eventually arrested in 1894 and later stood trial for multiple murders. Holmes was convicted and sentenced to death. He was executed on May 7, 1896, by hanging. There is no evidence linking H.H. Holmes to the Whitechapel murders, but some speculate he was responsible because he was active during the same time. He also had medical knowledge from his time as a medical student. H.H. Holmes was a businessman, and usually left a paper trail wherever he went. However, the trail mysteriously went cold between 1888 and 1889. Could this be because he was in London at the time? Weirdly, there was a passenger listed as H. Holmes aboard a ship that sailed from England to the United States in 1889, after the killings ended. But Holmes is a common name, and therefore this passenger log doesn't prove anything. Furthermore, Jack the Ripper killed on the streets, out in the open, whereas H. H. Holmes killed in private in his murder castle. He was also motivated by money, and it appears that Jack the Ripper had no such motive, since he killed women living in poverty. The first canonical victim, Mary Ann Nichols, also known as Polly, was discovered lying by a gate in Bucks Row by a man named Charles Cross. He had left his home for work at 3.30am and discovered Polly ten minutes later. A few minutes later, Robert Paul was also on his way to work when he saw Charles Cross near the body. Cross called over to him to have a look. He said, "'Come and look over here. There's a woman.'" Paul went over and, according to a report in the Evening Standard, he said, "'I went and found the woman lying on her back. I laid hold of her wrist and found that she was dead and the hands cold. It was too dark to see the blood about her. I thought that she had been outraged and had died in the struggle.'" Not wanting to be late for work, the men decided to continue their journey but notify the first police officer they found. They pulled down the woman's clothing to protect her modesty and went on their way. Neither reported seeing any blood, but it was very dark. PC Neal, who found Polly at 3.45am, saw blood coming from the wound in her neck. This could suggest that the cut was extremely fresh when the men found her. It was discovered in the early 2000s that Charles Cross was actually Charles Lechmere. Cross, the name he had given to the police at the time of the murders, was actually his stepfather's name. His real identity was hidden for over a century until it was discovered that there had been no one named Charles Allen Cross at his address in the census records. This raised an eyebrow among theorists. Why would he not tell police his real name? However, he did give them his correct address and place of employment. The theory is that Lechmere murdered Polly Nichols and had begun to mess with her body, but couldn't finish because he heard Robert Paul's footsteps coming towards him. He stood up, hid the knife and pretended to have found the body. No blood was found on Polly's clothing, so it is unlikely there would be any on Lechmere either. While reports suggest that Lechmere came across Polly's body just minutes after her death, Robert Poole told a reporter from Lloyd's Weekly newspaper later that day that the woman was so cold that she must have been dead some time. If true, this meant that there would have been time for someone else to murder Polly and get away before Lechmere found her. However, it was a cold night and the exact time of death was never made clear. It also doesn't make sense that the killer had time because he didn't finish messing with her body. She had several incisions across her abdomen, suggesting that he tried or was about to, which suggests he was interrupted or spooked. This means it's more likely that Lechmere did stumble upon Polly's body just minutes after she died, or that he killed her himself. Additionally, Dr Robert Llewellyn, who arrived on the scene at 4am, said that she had not been dead more than half an hour, meaning that she likely died at around 3.30am at the earliest and was found by Lechmere at 3.40am and by Paul at 3.45am. Profilers suggest that Jack the Ripper was a local, someone who knew the Whitechapel area well. Lechmere just so happened to be familiar with the murder sites, His route to work would have placed him in the vicinity. Elizabeth Stride was found a short distance from Lechmere's mother's house on a day he would not have been going to work. Mary Jane Kelly was killed near the northernmost route to his work. But if Lechmere was responsible, it would not make sense that all but one of the murders took place on weekends at a time when he would not have been on his route to work. In any case, there are no surviving records of Lechmere's employment, so it's impossible to know when he was working, and if he even worked at all. An entire book has been written about Walter Sickert potentially being Jack the Ripper. It's called Portrait of a Killer by Patricia Cornwell. It was published in 2002 and purports the theory that a German-British painter was Jack the Ripper. It must be noted, however, that theories of Walter Sickert being responsible for the murders appeared before this book was published. Sickert was born in Germany in 1860, and eight years later, he and his parents moved to England. His father was an artist, and little Walter wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. Sickert's paintings evoke mystery, and the features of his subjects are indistinct, meaning you have to interpret his art yourself. People can look at his work and see different things. In 1885, while working as an artist, Sickert married Ellen Cobden, a politician's daughter. They moved together to a place in Hampstead in northwest London, where Sickert used the top floor as his studio. Their relationship soured due to his infidelities and chronic independence, and spent the next several years moving back and forth between France and England. He eventually settled in London permanently in 1905. During this time, he exhibited several of his works at various exhibitions and was making a name for himself. He also spent time teaching at the Westminster Institute. Sickert remarried, this time to a student of his and 17 years his junior. Sadly, she died in 1920, and this seemed to put Sickert into a deep depression. The death of his mother just two years later also added to his depression. He then married a friend of his in 1926, but suffered a stroke shortly after and Sickert died in 1942. So why do some people think this artsy Francophile is Jack the Ripper? On 12th of September 1907, a woman who often worked the streets named Emily Elizabeth or Phyllis Dimmock was found murdered in her bed at 29 St Paul's Road in Camden, known in the press as the Camden Town Murder. Sickett, who lived in Camden at the time, began to title several drawings, sketches and paintings using this name. Patricia Cornwell thinks that Sickett murdered Emily because he allegedly hated women. The similarities between her and Mary Jane Kelly are obvious. Both were unfortunates who had their throats cut in their beds. This painting does seem eerily similar to the scene at Thirteen Millers Court, where Mary Jane Kelly died. During his time working on the Camden murder series, Sickert apparently wore a red handkerchief, which some people take as a nod to Jack the Ripper based on witness accounts. Sickert also painted a piece he titled, Jack the Ripper's Bedroom. The artwork shows a man, probably Jack the Ripper, standing by the window in his bedroom. Sickert had moved to lodgings at 6 Mornington Crescent, and the landlady told him that she suspected the previous tenant was Jack the Ripper. Sickert clearly had an interest in crime, and from 1905 he began to paint the victims of Jack the Ripper, notably Mary Jane Kelly and Catherine Eddowes, though this is up for debate. There are certainly similarities, particularly with the depiction of female faces that resemble Eddowes. One thing you should know about Walter Sickert is that whether he was painting from real life, drawings or photographs, he never painted what he hadn't seen in front of him. He never painted only from imagination. So if he was Jack the Ripper, was he therefore painting from memory? In 1899, a book was published in France, and Sickert had moved to France the year before. This book would depict details of a recent serial killer in France, but the book also published photos of the victims and crime scenes from the Jack the Ripper murders for the first time to the public. It is not implausible that Sickert acquired a copy of this book and painted what he saw in there. While the Walter-Sickert theory appears far-fetched, there is another part that could change your mind. Patricia Cornwell went so far as to have the Dear Boss letter tested, and results found mitochondrial DNA that could not rule out Sickert. Also, Scientific analysis showed that sheets of paper belonging to Walter Sickert matched some of the Jack the Ripper letters, with both coming from a paper run of just 24 sheets. Was Walter Sickert, as Patricia Cornwell claims, painting trophy paintings, paintings from his memory, or was he simply an artist interested in crime and mystery? David Cohen was a 23-year-old Polish Jew who was incarcerated at Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum on the 7th of December 1888, which coincides with the end of the murders. He was a violent man and described as antisocial. He died at the asylum in 1889. It's suspected that his real name was Nathan Kaminsky. Remember when the police claimed that they knew Jack the Ripper's identity, but were reluctant to give details only for DCI Donald Swanson to say that his name was Kuzminski? Well, the police's suspect Kosminski may have been a different person from Aaron Kuzminski. You see, the police's suspect was apparently admitted to an asylum shortly after the murders and then died quickly after. Aaron Kazminsky was not admitted to the asylum until 1891, and he didn't die quickly either. He died much later, in 1901. Martin Fido, in his book The Crimes, Detection and Death of Jack the Ripper, speculates that the police are not referring to Aaron Kazminsky, and DCI Swanson misremembered the suspect's name, and he actually meant to say Kaminsky. Nathan Kaminsky, fits the timeline, having been admitted to the asylum in 1888, right after the murders, and died the following year. Fido also claims that the name David Cohen was simply a generic name used at the time when one could not identify a Jewish person or pronounce their name. Joseph Barnett was a fish porter at Billingsgate Market, where he had worked for a decade. He was also victim Mary Jane Kelly's lover, and together they rented Thirteen Miller's Court. It's often speculated that Barnett lost his job in 1888, and that's why Mary Jane Kelly may have resorted to working the streets. Either way, Barnett was not happy with Kelly doing this. On the 30th of October 1888, Barnett and Kelly had a violent argument with the glass adjacent to the door of Thirteen Miller's Court being broken. The fight was, according to Barnett, because Kelly had allowed other women to stay in their room, women who worked the streets. Barnett ended up leaving her and took up accommodation at a boarding house in Bishopsgate. However, Barnett ended up visiting Kelly daily as friends. On the 7th of November, between 7.30pm and 7.45pm, Barnett stopped by once again, only to find Kelly in the company of a friend, another lady who also lived at Miller's Court. This woman could have been Lizzie Albrook or Maria Harvey. At 8pm, Barnett left Miller's Court and went back to his boarding house, where he eventually went to sleep at 12.30am. Mary Jane Kelly was seen again later that night at the Ten Bells pub, and then again by a witness who followed her and a gentleman to Miller's Court. Some people suspect that Barnett was so enraged at Mary Jane Kelly working the streets that he killed the other victims to scare her off, but when that didn't work, he ended up killing her in a fit of jealousy and rage. Others suspect that Barnett only killed Mary Jane Kelly and made her death look like the work of Jack the Ripper, but this seems far-fetched. It is true, however, that most women are killed by men that they know. The story of a scorned lover taking out his hurt ego on a woman is a tale as old as time. Barnett also knew the area well and he fits the physical description by witnesses. Barnett was 30 years old, medium build, he had a fair complexion and a moustache. But as a fish porter, it's unlikely he had anatomical knowledge, although it's not certain that Jack the Ripper ever had such knowledge. Barnett probably would have had access to knives, though, and with a personal connection to one of the victims, he shouldn't be completely discarded as a potential suspect. You may be aware of a book called The Diary of Jack the Ripper. This book, published in 2010 and written by Shirley Harrison, tells the story of the discovery and authentication of a journal discovered in 1992, allegedly written by Jack the Ripper. This journal belonged to a man named James Maybrick, leading to the conclusion by some people that Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. So who was James Maybrick? And was this journal the real deal? James Maybrick was a Liverpool cotton merchant who died in 1889. His wife, Florence Maybrick, was convicted of poisoning him with arsenic. It's worth noting that re-examination of her case in modern times suggests that he may have actually died from other circumstances, specifically a cocktail of drugs that he regularly took. You see, James Maybrick was in fact an addict. He regularly travelled to the United States for business where he contracted malaria and then became addicted to his medication which contained arsenic. Nevertheless, Florence received a death sentence, which was then commuted to life. In 1992, a diary surfaced, with its author claiming to be Jack the Ripper. While the writer of the diary did not mention their own name, there are details in the diary that suggest the writer was James Maybrick. A scrap metal dealer in Liverpool called Michael Barrett first introduced the diary to the world, claiming to have been given it by a friend. Later, Barrett's wife Anne claimed that the diary had been in her family for years and she thought her husband might write a book about it. To many people, the diary appears to be a hoax, but there are some people who believe it is genuine. The diary contains confessions of the five murders, and it is signed Jack the Ripper, 3rd of May 1889, which was a few days before Maybrick's death. Tests were carried out on the ink, which could not rule out it being from 1888. Additionally, some people claim that there are symptoms of arsenic poison described in the diary, which was not common knowledge at the time, and some details of the crimes were known only to police and the killer. However, it appears that this is a misconception. For example, the diary writer claims to have cut out Mary Jane Kelly's breasts and placed them on the bedside table, but they were actually found underneath her body. Additionally, the diary doesn't mention the kidney taken from Catherine Eddowes. Robert Smith, who is the current owner of the diary, conducted some research of his own. He claims that through records including job timesheets from 1992, that electricians working in Maybrick's home found the diary beneath the floorboards. They gave it to Barrett in the hopes that he could sell it to a publisher. Smith said I have never been in any doubt that the diary is a genuine document written in 1888 and 1889. The new and indisputable evidence that on 9th of March 1992 the diary was removed from under the floorboards of the room that had been James Maybrick's bedroom in 1889 and offered later on the very same day to a London literary agent overrides any other considerations regarding its authenticity. It follows that James Maybrick is its most likely author. However, in 1993, Michael Barrett swore in two affidavits where he claimed that his wife Anne had written the diary with his dictation, but this confession was later withdrawn. But the diary is not the only piece of physical evidence supporting the theory that Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. In 1993, there was a pocket watch found which had a scratching of the name J. Maybrick along with the initials of the Canonical Five and the words I am Jack. The watch was examined by experts who suggested that the watch did have significant wear and tear consistent with it being of substantial age. They did note that someone could have artificially aged it, but the process would have been complex. Dr. Robert Wilde, who examined the watch, said... Provided the watch has remained in a normal environment, it would seem likely that the engravings were at least several tens of years' age. In my opinion, it is unlikely that anyone would have sufficient expertise to implant aged brass particles into the base of the engravings. So was James Maybrick Jack the Ripper? Was the diary real or a hoax? This is a debate that has endured for decades. There is a final piece of evidence linking one of the suspects to the crimes of Jack the Ripper, DNA. In 2019, a peer-reviewed paper was published detailing the results of testing done several years prior on a blood-stained silk shawl that was supposedly found at the crime scene of Catherine Eddowes. The DNA testing compared fragments of mitochondrial DNA, the DNA only inherited from the mother and found that it was a match to both Catherine Eddowes and one of the prime suspects. That suspect is Aaron Kuzminski. This sounds like a slam dunk, but there are some factors to consider. Firstly, mitochondrial DNA can only be used to exclude suspects. It doesn't mean that the DNA matched Aaron Kuzminski and no one else. Rather, it means that he could not be ruled out. It could match him, and it could match others. An expert in Mitochondrial DNA at Innsbruck Medical University in Austria said, Based on Mitochondrial DNA, one can only exclude a suspect. In other words, the Mitochondrial DNA from the shawl could be from Kuzminski, but it could probably also have come from thousands who lived in London at the time. We also don't know for sure that the shawl was ever found at the crime scene. There is no evidence of a shawl documented in the police reports. The shawl could also have been contaminated because there is no chain of custody. We do not know precisely how the shawl's origin came about and if it ever even belonged to Eddowes. For these reasons, we cannot conclusively determine that Jack the Ripper was Aaron Kuzminski. Nevertheless, due to the police naming a Kosminski as their number one suspect, coupled with this DNA result, many people believe that Jack the Ripper has finally been unmasked. Who do you think was Jack the Ripper? Let us know in the comments. The case of Jack the Ripper continues to intrigue and horrify millions of people worldwide. It has spawned countless tours around Whitechapel, books, movies and documentaries. We may never know who Jack the Ripper really was, but the most important thing is to keep alive the memory of the women who lost their lives at his hands. Let's not forget the names Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Thank you for watching, and please subscribe and like this video. We will release more Darkseid documentaries soon.